Things, people, situations disappoint us, and so we retreat, and we withdraw, and we go hide in our little corner over there until it blows over. We have not been called to hide in a corner. We've been called to hide ourselves in a Christian community of brothers and sisters who will love us and surround us and encourage us and sometimes kick us when we need it. Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through Scripture alone and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, we're going to be reading verses 27 through 36, studying those together. While you're turning there, I just want to remind us of the context. There's a lot of ground I want to cover, so I want to just jump in here. The context that we're looking at is the Apostle Paul is returning to Jerusalem with offerings from the Asian churches who have taken up an offering for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem and is now bringing it. Although every place that he went, the Holy Spirit would testify through people, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, there are chains that await you. There's imprisonment that awaits you, which wasn't God's way of trying to talk him out of it. It was just saying, this is what is coming. And so what we do not see in the days leading up to this or now as Paul is arrested under the threat of suffering and persecution, we don't see Paul moving away. We see him running headlong towards persecution. I want to just pause us there for a second because that's not how we think about sharing the gospel or missions today. As soon as there is the slightest hint of resistance not even anywhere close to persecution, we dial it way back. Man, I I don't want to stir anything up at work. I don't want to offend anybody. I'm just going to pull it back. I'm going to be a bit more cautious. There's mission fields around the world that are not safe for missionaries to travel to with the gospel, and there can be a tendency to go, the cost just is not worth it. And I would say from a human perspective, if you were part of the adult Sunday school class, uh, from human earthly wisdom Absolutely, because our our human earthly wisdom is based on our comfort and our ease most of the time. From a gospel and scriptural perspective, we see the exact opposite. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it, even if it should cost me all that I have. Knowing that the Holy Spirit had promised chains and suffering and even death lay before him, Paul runs headlong towards Jerusalem. If you grab your bullet now, this is one of the fill in the blanks that's in there. It says, we see Paul standing through suffering, not because Paul was strong, but because the God who sustained him was sovereign. This is going to be the theme for the entire time we spend together this morning. I'm going to read it to you one more time. I think it might be the next slide after that one. Or there it is. We see Paul standing through suffering. Why did he stand? Not because he was strong. Not because he was more spiritual than you are. But because the God who sustained him was sovereign. 
We could pray and go home because this is the entire message this morning. You are not going to stand up under the difficulties in your life because you're strong. By the way, that means when you succumb to the difficulties in your life, you don't look around and go, well, I didn't make it because I wasn't strong enough. Man, I wasn't strong like this person. I wasn't strong like that person. Paul didn't stand because he was strong. He stood because the God who sustained him was sovereign. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd, and laid their hands on him. Let let me just remind us what we're talking about when it says these seven days were completed. Paul has come to Jerusalem with amazing tales of what God has done throughout all of these Asian churches. God has done amazing things in saving Gentiles. And he comes to James, who's sort of the head of the church in Jerusalem, and the brothers, the elders who are gathered there. And as he shares with them, this is what God has done. They rejoice with him, but then there's a lingering but that's coming. Paul, that's great. But we have a problem. The problem is there's been a lot of talk about you while you've been gone. And basically, all of these Jewish converts that we have here in Jerusalem who believe in Jesus, who who have trusted in Christ for salvation, but are still keeping the Old Testament law, that's still their, their heritage, all of them are circulating these rumors that you're actually telling people to disregard all of our laws, all of our traditions. So as we talk about this, I don't want you to think about the Old Testament law because in Christ we are freed from the Old Testament ceremonial law. Amen? You know how I know this? Because most of us in this room are wearing clothes that are made out of mixed fabric and that was forbidden in the Old Testament ceremonial law. That was to set apart God's people from every other people. You're going to dress differently. Most of the guys in this room have trimmed the side of their hair over here. That Old Testament ceremonial law said Jewish men were not allowed to do that, or people who were adopted into the covenant, that would be us. Because not only are you going to dress differently, you're going to do your hair differently than everybody else around you. You are going to stick out. Many of you, by the grace of God, ate a forbidden animal in the form of bacon this morning for breakfast. Yes, I I got one amen back there in the back, Uh, which according to Jewish ceremonial law was done. Because we have been freed in Christ from the Jewish ceremonial law, we no longer have to keep that. I don't want you to think about that because that will confuse this passage. Here's what I want you to think when we talk about the law. They're talking about our traditions, who we are, what's our national heritage speaking for them as Jewish men and women who for centuries, this is the only thing that has defined us. We've been chased around from place to place. We never had a home of our own. And now that they're actually in Jerusalem, back in Jerusalem from captivity, they're not free in Jerusalem. They're being ruled by the Romans. They aren't in charge of their own government. The only thing that defines their identity is their religious tradition. Better hear that one more time. The only thing that identifies their cultural heritage, their national identity, is their religious traditions. Can you see why it's a big deal if they think Paul is saying all of that stuff is garbage, throw it away? It's a big deal whether you nod your head or not. Okay, good. Glad glad we're together on this. So 
Paul has come and been greeted with this news. Listen, everybody's talking bad about you, but here's the solution James comes up with. He says, we have these four guys who are doing a vow of purification. At some point, they're, they're doing this vow, and what we want you to do is actually pay for all of the sacrifices that are going to be a part of that. Pay for this whole process, and you go through this act of purification yourself. That way, everybody will see, oh, no, no, no. Paul's completely on our side. He's completely standing behind our traditions. So this was an ongoing process, that this vow of purification, usually a week long. Paul's been, been covering for that. And in this vow, on the third and the seventh day, you had to go to the temple for a cleansing. So on the third day and the seventh day, you had to go into the temple. So on the seventh day, that's what it means when it says the seventh day, Paul goes into the temple. What's he doing there? Fulfilling the Old Testament commands of purification, right? He's keeping the law. He's even keeping the ceremonial law at this point. Yet he gets in there, and it's there while he's doing the right thing. Look at the person next to you and say, doing the right thing. All right, that's important. We're going to land on that a little later. It's then that the Asian Jews see him and accuse him. In the midst of doing the right thing. Now, we know these Asian Jews are from Ephesus. How do we know that? Because they recognize a kid from Ephesus. So it says they see with him in the temple Paul and Trophimus the Ephesian. So they were familiar with Paul. They could have been from any of the cities in Asia and have seen Paul going into their synagogue, preaching Jesus, arguing for Christ, usually for months on end. They could have been familiar with him, but they had to, number one, have had direct contact with him. You know why? There were no pictures of Paul. Do you know what Paul looks like? I don't either. We don't have any pictures. There's no representation of Paul. In fact, back then when they would do... Uh, even sculptures on like little coins, you'll see coins would have like Caesar's image on it. And Caesar was either really, really goofy looking or those didn't always come out accurate. Are you tracking with me? Right. So you couldn't have a little coin in your pocket and be like, "Nope, that's Paul. All right. This they had one on one personal knowledge of Paul and what he looked like. But secondly, they knew Trophimus. They recognized, wait a minute, I've seen him around town with this kid Trophimus, who I know is an Ephesian. In fact, I know he's not a Jew. I know he is a Greek. They knew who he was, and they knew his background, which meant they must have been from Ephesus. Remember, Paul had spent two to three years there. Why, why even bother talking about the fact that they're from Ephesus? Have you ever had people in your life where you tried and tried your best to do the right thing, and they just wouldn't leave you alone? Like their entire life was based on, how can I make you miserable? And you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to walk away. I'm just going to step away from this. And they just follow you. And they're, they're hounding you. They're dogging you from place to place. Paul has spent two to three years in Ephesus teaching, pleading, arguing for the gospel of Jesus Christ in their synagogue. And they want nothing to do with it. These guys want nothing to do with it. There were many who were saved, but he ends up having to sneak out of town because there was a virtual riot going on in Ephesus. Now they have followed him to Jerusalem. They are stirring things up again, and again in the temple we are on the verge of a riot. So much so that the Roman guards have to come 
running. Did you notice that in the text? That they came running to stop whatever was about to happen because it doesn't just say that there was trouble in the temple. It says the entire city was in an uproar. See, we've seen this plot before, though. This isn't the first time that the Jewish leaders have attempted this sort of thing. We saw the exact same arguments, the exact same tactics with Stephen. Keep your finger here, but let's flip back to Acts chapter 6. I know we're doing a study through the book of Acts, so you would say, oh yeah, Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 6, those aren't too far apart, except we talked about this over a year ago. So I want to turn us to it just to remind us. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 12 through 14. Remember, why, why did the guards run here? Because the whole city was stirred up. Look at this first words in Acts chapter 6, verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses... People who said things that weren't true. The same thing we we see in Acts 21. And here's what they said. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. And we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. It is the exact same tactic. They, They have three main parts to this. Number one, they're stirring up the crowd. If you want to start a riot, stir up the crowd. That doesn't happen with reasoned arguments. It happens with outrageous emotion. They're not in there to make a good argument about the law and Christ and what, if Jesus is the Christ, what does that mean and what are the implications? They are there to stir up affections and emotion. It is a desire to generate emotion, not to win an argument or a debate. By the way, just... Just be on guard. Have this in the back of your mind as you watch situations in our world today where you can tell people are not interested in having a reasoned argument or debate about it. They're not reasonable people. They just want to fight. And they just want to shout down the other people and not listen. It's the same tactic. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. They stir up nationalism. Both times, in Acts 6 and Acts 21, they talk about he's speaking against this holy place and the law. Remember, we're not thinking about Christ's fulfillment of the law. We're we're thinking about that Jewish religious tradition. That's the only thing that defined them. So nationalism is sort of our blind allegiance that leads us to do ridiculous things, even immoral things, because of our adherence to some national identity. That's what they're attempting to stir up. And the third thing is they are stirring up traditionalism. We have these traditions. These are what define us. This is what gives our life meaning. And he wants to come in and change our customs and traditions. We're going to talk about this one a little bit more in just a second. But I think for the demographic that we have in this room, this is one we should be very cautious of because what they are appealing to is conservatism. Will we be a conservative? Will we we be one who conserves the patterns and traditions that we have inherited from the past? Will we hold on to those going forward? Don't run out yet. We're going to get there. It's going to be fair and balanced, just like the news. All right. Here's how that tactic ended with Stephen. 
murder. It worked very well. It, it ended in his death, so much so that he was publicly murdered, and the officials did nothing because they were really afraid of a full-scale riot and rebellion. And now, if you flip back to Acts 21, we see the exact same thing happening with the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 28. Listen for the echoes that are coming. This is 20 years later, but listen for the same echoes, crying out, men of Israel, help. Can you hear the urgency in that? Help, we have a problem. We have to deal with this right now. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people, against the law, against this place. Moreover, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they previously had seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city and had supposed that Paul brought him into the temple. Here's what they're saying. This is against us. Not just the law. This is against us. Our national identity, our traditional identity. Remember, that's all that they have. As Jews, that's all that they have. It's against the people. It's against the law. It's against this place. Here's what they're saying. We need to conserve and defend our way of life. It's their only national identity. But then they made an assumption. Here's their assumption. He cares so little for our laws and tradition that he is willing to sneak a Greek into the temple, even though that would be the highest violation. If you remember, we're not going to take time to read all through chapter 6. Remember when we were studying chapter 6, they were, all, they were meeting in the outer court because all these uh, others were getting saved. And so they couldn't go into the inner courts because there were signs over the door of the inner court of the temple that said, and by the way, the, these signs still exist. We still have them. The temple's been destroyed, but we have several of these signs that were over the doors. No foreigners allowed inside. Whoever is captured will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. If you go into our inner Jewish court, we will kill you. Here's what they're thinking. Paul cares so little about that. Can you hear how severe that is? Can you imagine if traffic tickets were that severe? Anybody? Anybody? I'd be done speeding from this. I would never roll through a stop sign again, ever, right? If it's like, sir, can I see your license and registration? <laughs> On the spot, like that would be dramatic and we would be done. That is the level of punishment associated with bringing a Greek into the temple. Death on the spot. That, did you notice they wanted to kill Paul on the spot? We don't even see Trophimus here. We're pretty sure you brought him death on the spot. This was a huge deal if Paul, if Paul had disregarded their customs and brought someone in. Now, I want to I just think with us just for a little bit. There is a danger that we can have. I, I, I don't think this is what's going on with Paul. I don't think he was going here, but there is a danger with us that sort of is something of a swagger, especially for those who have just discovered the biblical truths of our freedom, our salvation in Christ. Uh, they've just stumbled upon the doctrines of grace. It's what we call the cage stage, where these, these doctrines of truth Doctrines of grace come alive in such of our heart. By the way, the doctrines of grace are what are on the back wall there. That we're saved by grace alone. It's revealed in Scripture alone. It's through Christ alone. 
To the glory of God alone, it's only through faith alone. It doesn't come through our works. We get a hold of that. They, they talk about this cage stage. It, it's basically when you have to have every possible theological argument possible. Anytime you come across somebody who slightly is thinking different, you have to have the argument and you have to have it in full. And it is radical and it's like no holds barred. We love telling people how they have slipped back into legalism and boast about our own freedom in Christ. If that's what Paul is doing here, he's effectively sabotaging his own attempts to share the gospel with these people. Now, what is the pattern we have seen in Paul? He's gone from town to town, city to city, synagogue to synagogue, even when he knows it's not safe for him. Remember, why was he going to Jerusalem? To deliver money. And yet he gets caught in the temple. He's doing this purification thing. you got to know he wasn't keeping his mouth shut. There's some people who are just not capable. Some of us are like, well, I'm so spiritual, I could have kept my mouth shut about Jesus the whole time. They would have never known. That's not Paul. But Paul is probably aggressively sharing the gospel. And yet, if he was disregarding all of those customs, all of their tradition, he would have been doing the opposite of contextualization. So this is in your bulletin as well. Contextualization is where we carefully and thoughtfully bring the gospel into the context of the people we're wanting to reach. The church is historically terrible at this, I'll just tell you. Uh, historically, the, the church doesn't love contextualization, it loves colonization. Where we go in and we make you a mini colony of us. We want you to look like us and act like us and dress like us and talk like us. My favorite example, my favorite all-time example of this is, and I, it, it's been like 25 years since I heard it in Bible college, but they were talking about this idea of contextualization. And they talked about a Christian organization that went into uh, a tribal area and started sharing the gospel for the first time and started seeing people get saved. But this is one of those tribal areas where Everyone in uh, the crowd just wore loincloths. So men and women were both topless in this setting. And as people got saved, they attempted colonization. They said, listen, this is indecent and immoral. And so they started giving all of the women who were coming to Christ T-shirts to wear. Because we want them to look like us, clearly. And it came more and more where the people in the village would have nothing to do with the Christian women. And as they pursued it and asked, what is going on? Why, why won't anyone have anything to do with these Christian women? They said, well, literally, in our village, the only women who ever wore anything on their top were prostitutes. They had effectively taken the gospel and made all the Christians look like prostitutes in their context. Can you hear how that might be missing the heart of modesty? Yeah. Beautiful example of colonization where we think everybody needs to look like us, think like us, act like us, dress like us. What we want to do is bring the gospel into their context. What is their culture? What is the context in which I'm attempting to share the gospel? If we don't find that out first, it doesn't give us a platform to actually share the gospel with them. So thinking back about their strategy against Paul, against Stephen, that strategy should actually sound familiar to us for another reason. 
we think outside of the biblical and into our modern age, how many times, and this is, this is why I want to caution us, especially as those who maybe in this room identify as conservatives. I, I hope you know, number one, God has not called you to be a Republican or a Democrat. He's called you to be a Christian. That was so good it got theme music in the background. So I'll say it again. God has not called you to be a Republican or a Democrat. He's called you to be a Christian, to stand for godliness and righteousness. Now, you may be a Democrat or a Republican, but as either one of those things, you need to stand for godliness and righteousness. Oh, that was a lot better. That was a lot better. Yeah, how many times... So. Because this area is predominantly conservative, how many times do we hear an appeal to national identity? That same thing that they're arguing against Paul, national identity. We need to be conservative. Those two things, keeping, conserving what we have. Both of those are usually very good, right? It, right? Okay, like, believe it or not, we actually have a fairly awesome heritage in this nation. It is, it is not a Christian nation. It never has been a Christian nation. But it is a nation that was founded on biblical principles. We need to conserve that. Amen. Good. Glad you're with me. Unless, unless we find our identity in being conservative and it keeps us from having a real conversation about what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, and it, it degenerates to it's only us versus them. When it's just us versus them, our nation loses. When it's us versus them in the church, our churches lose. We're called to stand for godliness and righteousness. And here's the, the horrible thing about it. This strategy worked. By the way, this is why this strategy is almost exclusively employed in politics today. They, they don't sit around and talk about, here are the great things we want to do. They talk for 45 minutes about how evil the other person is and then a blip of what they will do with no actual substance of how they're going to pull it off. It, it's just identity politics. This strategy works today, and it worked then. Look at verse 30. Here's the effect it has. Then all the city was stirred up. All the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Why? What had Paul done? What was he doing? Nothing. He was keeping their law. He was keeping their traditions. He was actually declaring their Messiah. Here's why that's important to say. Sometimes suffering seems like it is of no valid reason. I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing the best I can. And then suffering comes time after time after time. We see that in verses 27 through 29. It just looks like no reason. Trophimus isn't even in the temple. He's never been in the temple. But now the whole city is stirred up. They've grabbed him. They've dragged him out of the temple. They've closed the gates behind him. It's like a ceremonial slamming the door in your face. They're beating him. They're planning on killing him right there and then, verse 31 tells us. Seriously? God, you're just going to let this happen? 
I don't know if you've forgotten God, but I was doing the right thing. I'm not here for my own happiness. I don't know, God, maybe you forgot this. Can you hear how flippant we get with him? We don't ever say things like this, but oh, our hearts scream it. God, I'm not here for my benefit. I'm here for your benefit. I'm preaching your gospel. If you remember from Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul's theme verse for his life, he says, But I do not account my life of any value nor precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. That's what I'm doing. God, why on earth would you let this happen? Except God had warned him again and again and again. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Paul could have rightly said, I tried to do everything right. He really had. He was, he was keeping Old Testament law that he would relatively soon, as things changed in Jerusalem, be telling people, listen, you don't have to do that anymore. We often say that. I tried everything I could, only it's rarely true. Come on, let's be honest with each other. It's usually our reason, it's our excuse for giving up. We say, I tried everything I could. Come on. No, you didn't. You definitely didn't try everything, and what you did try, you probably didn't even try consistently. Yet we tried for a little bit, and things didn't work, it didn't turn around, and so that's my door out. That's why I can quit. Except Paul really had. If you remember from last week, he's met with James, he's fulfilling these pledges, these vows that these men had taken, he's doing it for himself, all for the sake of contextualizing the gospel, that Paul might take the gospel into this orthodox Jewish context. He agrees to go through the whole purification ritual himself to pay for these four other young men. He could have at this point said, listen, guys, I tried everything you wanted me to do. I'm out. I'm done. By the way, find another apostle. I'm out. I want nothing to do with you anymore. That sounds familiar because too often that's our response. We find ourselves in painful, difficult life situations and our first instinct is I'm out. Maybe we don't physically walk away, but emotionally, I'm done. This person or this church or this God has not been good to me. I'm done. At least done for right now. Like maybe, maybe we don't walk away from God forever, but we use our anger at God in some situation to justify a week or two of really bad behavior, of binging on whatever sin habitually plagues your life. And then a couple weeks from now, yeah, I'll pull it together. It's going to be all right. I want to say to us, we are messing with a very dangerous and deep well. And if you get too far down in that well, you may not climb back out at some point. Here's, here's the heart of this. We believe that I can do a better job of taking, my, taking care of myself than, God, I think you can. That's really what it comes down to. And my question is, how well has this worked in your life? 
If this is our pattern, we do this over and over. Things, people, situations disappoint us, and so we retreat, and we withdraw, and we go hide in our little corner over there until it blows over. How has this worked out for you in your life? Because we've not been called to the corner. We've been called to community. That should have made it onto the slideshow. We have not been called to hide in a quarter. We've been called to hide ourselves in a Christian community of brothers and sisters who will love us and surround us and encourage us and sometimes kick us when we need it. I don't know all of your story, but I can tell you how it's ended. We've pushed other people away. We've separated ourselves from anyone who might threaten our autonomy And it has damaged relationships with the church, with your family, with your job, and with your friends. Am I too far off? It gets worse. Here's where it actually gets wicked. In the end, we almost always end up feeling hopeless and alone, but justified. Hopeless and alone, but justified. We we sink into self-pity and feeling that martyr complex, and we say, no one cares about me. I'm going through the most difficult time of my life, and no one is reaching out to me. And the answer to that is, you are correct. Not that no one cares about you, but you've pushed everyone so far away, they are now out of arm's reach. They don't know what's going on in your heart of hearts. And if you're not reaching out to Christian community, you are hiding in your corner. Spoiler alert, continue to expect hopelessness and loneliness in that corner. Is this enough of an encouraging Sunday morning service? Man, who preaches like this? What a jerk. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I I said all that because I want to make the argument for we need something different. That is what the corner comes natural As Christians, we need godly Christian community. We need something different. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 says this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. It doesn't say there won't be toil and hard work. It says the payoff is better. Listen, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone. I actually left that in your bulletin so you would have to write down the word alone. When I choose the corner, I choose to be alone. Woe to him who is alone. When he falls, he has not another to lift him up. There's a chance that well is slippery and you can end up all the way down at the bottom of it. I want to remind us of our theme. What is it we're talking about in this? We don't see Paul standing through suffering because Paul was strong, but because the God who sustained him was sovereign. See, when we retreat to the corner, we're effectively saying, God, I don't think you have a good control of my life. I certainly don't trust these people with my life. I'm the only one who can control things in my life. I'm just going to back up and hide until the storm blows by. We don't see Paul standing. You won't see you standing because you're strong. It's because the God who sustained him was sovereign. One of the early reformers' name was John Huss. Huss lived about 100 years before Martin Luther, so the early 1400s. He was a Roman Catholic priest in a time that was really bad for the Roman Catholic Church. And I don't just mean like really bad as far as theology, 
Uh, this was a bad time for the church. Uh, they had, at one point during Huss's life, three different popes. Uh, one pope who was immoral and unjust, and so they had a, a vote of the cardinals, and they voted in a different pope, only this guy wouldn't leave Rome, so this guy set up a uh, camp in another city. And then you had two warring popes, and that goes on long enough that they can't decide which one is right anymore. So here's their genius solution. Worked so good the first time. Let's do it again. Let's elect a third pope in the middle. That's going to clear the whole thing up. Eventually, they had to get rid of all three of them and get one new one. This was a terrible time of confusion and disorder within the Catholic Church, and he sought to bring reform. Reform to ecclesiology, how the church is structured Reformed to the Eucharist, to communion. Like so many of the other reformers, he was challenged and harassed and threatened, usually without an even honest debate or discussion of the real issues that they were talking about. He was almost killed, like literally almost died, three times in an eight-year period. One of them was when they trapped him and his family in his house and then set the house on fire. And somehow, miraculously, they escape. Now, you mess with me, it's one thing. You mess with my family, you try and kill my kids, game on. That's not how Huss responded. In fact, one of his friends came to him and said, how is it you have been harassed from city to city? Why are you still attempting to proclaim these truths? And here's the quote that I think I put in your bulletin as well. I shall much rather die for his glory's sake than to deny the verity that I have learned in his holy scriptures. That which is true, that which is verifiable, that which I can set my life on that I found in the scripture. Therefore, faithful Christian, seek the truth. Listen to the truth. Learn the truth. Love the truth. Tell the truth. Learn the truth. Defend the truth even to death. Can you hear Echoing down, this is 600 years ago, echoing through six centuries. That command, sort of that intensity, you have to know the truth, Christian. You have to learn it. You have to love it. You have to sink your entire life into the truth because life and death may very well depend on it. And for us, on July 6th in 1415, they stripped him in the middle of the city square in Prague. They tied him to a post with a chain, and then they started stacking up wood around his body, all the time telling him, if you want to recant and turn from this, it was the early seeds of what we would call justification by faith. All of these early seeds of Scripture alone, if you want to recant and turn from this back to tradition, back to nationalism, the same stuff that we were talking about with Paul and Stephen, you can. And he refuses, and he refuses until the wood is stacked up to his neck, and then they set it on fire, and he died. That's the glorious ending of John Huff's, John Huss's life. Here's what we'd love. He says, I will not do that. And angels come down, then they ripped the chains off, and they removed the wood. Only God's plan for Huss was fire. That you and I today might know that the gospel is worth living for and the gospel is worth dying for. There are times God will bring fire into your life, not because he hates you, but because he wants one more example that this truth of Jesus Christ is worth living and dying for. And you are preaching with your life in your suffering to those around you. Look at verse 31. We're almost done. 
And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort. And all of Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took the soldiers and the centurions, and he ran down to them. And when he saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and inquired who he was, what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. As he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. But can you feel how they're pressing in on him in verse 35? When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Here's the question. Who put Paul in this situation? Don't shy away from this question. Who put Paul in this situation? God did. We cannot give God a pass on this one. We would love when hard times come into our life. No, no, no. That was, that was evil men. That was evil plans of the enemy. That'd be great if God hasn't been promising again and again and again and again, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. Who brought him trouble? God did. Who put him in chains? God did. 20 years earlier in Acts chapter 9, we're not going to take time uh, for the sake of time to read it. Acts chapter 9, just make a note. God is sending Ananias to go meet Saul, as Paul is known back then by his Jewish name, who's been literally knocked off his high horse with an encounter with Jesus and is blind. And Ananias is going to go pray for him. The scales are going to fall off. God's going to call him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he says to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. It would be awesome if verse 16 was not in your Bible. Actually, it wouldn't be awesome because it would, it would mean God is not sovereign over our suffering. This is one of those verses that proves God's sovereignty over suffering. He says, long before Saul has even said, yes, Jesus, I will follow you, God's promise to him is I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's true for Paul, and it's true for you. This is in your bulletin. Make sure you get this one. Cut this one out. Stick it on your mirror. This moment is not a surprise to God, and it is 100% under his sovereign control. This moment that you find yourself in right now is not a surprise to God, and it's 100% under his sovereign control. Christian, this moment that you are in Right now, some of you have come into this room this morning with gigantic life questions and you feel like everything is out of control. This moment right now is not a surprise to God and it is 100% under his sovereign control. Worship team, if you guys want to come on up. I want to help us just think and apply this quickly in closing. For some of you, when I said that, your first thought was, well, it doesn't feel like it to me. It doesn't feel like God's in control this moment. If he is, it doesn't feel like he cares. 
I think that's because we have too often been told that God's plan is to make you happy. To make everything work out in your life pain-free and problem-free. But here's the reality. God's aim is the rightful praise of his glory among the nations in heaven and earth and below for all eternity. That's God's purpose. Let me say that one more time, just in case you missed it. God's aim is the rightful praise of his glory among all the nations in heaven and on earth and below for all eternity. That's God's goal for your life. The rightful praise of his glory. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, from the New Living Translation, God says, I will rescue you for my sake. Yes, for my own sake. I will not let my reputation be tarnished. I will not share my glory with idols. That means, Christian, your good is found in his glory, in the majesty of his name, in the majesty of his character, in the majesty and the beauty of his gospel being made known through your life to every nation, tribe, and tongue, not your personal comfort. Are you tracking with me? If we confuse that, we will have no frame of reference for what is going on in our life. This is why, oh please hear me, this is why the prosperity gospel is an abomination. Not because of its excesses in health and wealth, and TV preachers, but because it has created a man-centered rather than God-centered perversion of the gospel. That God's whole plan is to bless you and to strengthen you and encourage you and give you money and give you health and give you whatever it is you need. Does God love his children? Yes. Does God care about you and your family? Yes. And your finances? Yes. And your health? Yes. Is God's plan your health and happiness? No. God's plan is his glory among the nations in heaven, on earth, and below for all eternity. That's God's plan. God's plan is God-centered and the other is man-centered. And therefore, excess or no, it is an abomination. Can I say that any stronger? I don't think so. Here's why, here's why it's horrible. It's not just an abomination. It is evil because it will not sustain you when the angry crowd comes for you. When they won't listen to you, when they beat you, when they want to kill you, when they threaten your family and they take all that you own. Now listen, you may stand up under that with that kind of word of faith theology. But I promise you, your kids will waver. By the time it gets to your grandkids and great-grandkids, they will say, this does not work. The promises were empty. God has not blessed our family. God has not cared for our family and loved our family. Rather than, as we look back at one of the reformers like John Huss and go, that was a hero of the faith. Because we don't see Huss's success or failure. We see the sovereignty of God. God was writing his story in the blood of men and women. This is where Paul was. This is why Paul would go to Jerusalem and allow himself to be arrested. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. We're going to end with this. Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Departure didn't mean he had a flight to catch. It mean they were going to cut his head off. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
And henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. No, not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. And do you love the appearing of the greatness and the majesty of Jesus Christ more than everything else? Do you love it more than your life? Do you love the gospel more than you love your job and your finances and your family? If not, the other things that we love more will take precedent over the gospel. And we will revert back to, God, I'm going to do the best I can for you as long as it keeps me safe and comfortable. So what's our next steps? Where do we go from here? Trust in Christ. That's the first one. Trust in Christ. This is true whether you're a believer in this room this morning or if you're an unbeliever. Trust in Christ and not yourself. If you're an unbeliever here, I'm thrilled that you are in the room with us. I'm thrilled that someone would come and say, I want to check out what this God is, what this church thing is. And I would encourage you, as Christians, speaking to the unbeliever, most of the time we've let you down. We've led some really bad example with our lives of what it looks like to put your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ. So I would say, don't just go on our example. Dive into God's word. As God's word has revealed this great salvation for sinners like us who don't deserve it, who mess up time and time again, yet God has been loving and gracious and he wants to do that for you. Trust in him. If you're a believer in here, it's that same trust, but I think applied a little bit differently. Because we can say, Jesus, I trust you for my salvation, but when it comes to care, taking care of my life, I don't know. It doesn't seem like you've been doing a good job. I'm going to handle this myself. That leads to hardness and bitterness and loneliness, like we talked about earlier. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ, Christian, when you don't feel it this morning. Jesus, I choose to trust in you. And here's the second one. Treasure the glory of God above all else. That's what God does. All that he has done, he has done for the sake of his name and his glory. And therefore, we can say, God, your name and your glory are the things worthy of the highest praise in all of the universe. And therefore, it is right for us to treasure that more than everything else and repent of our self-centered idolatry. Now, some of you would go, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've, I've never been into that stuff you were talking about earlier. I'm definitely not into idols. We don't have an idol in my house. Oh, but how quickly, Christian, do we make church all about meeting our needs and our comfort? How quickly do we make fellowship one with another all about what's most convenient and easy for me? And when it doesn't work out like that, we are angry with people and we are angry with the church. The reason is because we are walking in idolatry. And the answer is simple. It's repent and say, Jesus, help me trust in you. Help me not make this Christian life about me. Let my life as a Christian be all about Christ. Oh, there's a novel idea. Live lives that honor him. 